Hey, it's good to be here. I'm glad that you could be here. We're in Matthew chapter 5 again. We're doing a study through the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, we won't be doing that next week, anniversary Sunday, but uh, we're looking in uh, Matthew 5. We just finished up with the Beatitudes, and uh, we're going to look in Matthew 5 at the high standard of grace, and particularly this morning, at grace and murder. You say, wait, those don't go together. Well, they do and they don't, and we'll find out why. Okay, if you have your Bible, Matthew chapter 5, uh, we're going to look in verse 17, Matthew five seventeen. do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away. Now notice, heaven and earth will pass away. There are some people who believe that, oh God... We are ushering in the kingdom and we're all going to live happily ever after. Heaven and earth will pass away. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. Jesus said so and elsewhere in scripture the apostles said so. Um, I say to you till heaven and earth pass away one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. So what's a jot and what's a tittle? Well if you read Hebrew which I really don't and uh, the Jot is the smallest letter. So for us, uh, have you ever seen, well, I guess all the, on your type, on the old typewriters, every character had the same width, but in the computers, they don't. So like the lowercase i is only like that wide and the w is like that wide. And so the, imagine that lowercase i, that's the jot, that smallest letter. And the tittle is just the dot above the, that lowercase i. Just a tiny little dot. It's the smallest mark in Hebrew language. So the Lord's saying, listen, all that law written in all that Hebrew language, books and books in the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, the law, and the prophet, all of that, the littlest, itty-bittiest little part will not go away till it be fulfilled. Then, verse 19, Whosoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter into the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to you, I'm sorry, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whosoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, or empty-headed one, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Verse 25, agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and you are thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. 
In verse 17, Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Now today we get really weird ideas that people have, and there have always been weird theology, theological ideas out there, always been. But with the internet, it's more prolific now. If you go to Google something on the internet, what does the Bible say about? And you're going to get all kinds of people, some of whom don't even understand the Bible accurately, some of whom are from false religions, and they still use the Bible, but they abuse the Bible. And so you're going to get all kinds of things. Some of those best websites, when you're Googling that, and it, what does the Bible say about if it brings up a list of verses? That's the best thing for you. Then you're not getting somebody's idea. You're just getting the word. So Jesus said he did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Now there's multiple aspects of that fulfill. One part of fulfill the law is to obey. Right? Jesus obeyed the laws. Jesus never sinned. I can't imagine what that would have been like to be his parent. I can't imagine what it would have been like to be his sibling. Yeah, you know, your parents, some parents compare their kids to each other. That's a really bad thing. But I've known some kids, their parents say, why can't you be more like your sister, right? Why, why can't you be more like Jesus? Come on, he's perfect. Why can't you be like him? I, I, I can't imagine what that was like. Jesus never sinned. I can't imagine what it's like to never sin on the inside. We have a sinful heart. Jesus did not have a sinful heart. So he obeyed the law, but he didn't just obey the law. He also helped to explain it more completely to bring out the understanding of it, to fulfill so that people could grasp it and understand not just what the words said, but the heart of God that was behind what those words said. And also he came to bring the law to its intended Completion. Turn, please, mark your spot here and turn to Galatians, the book of Galatians. I think I have a wrong reference. Turn to Galatians. I'll double check. Galatians, I think it's supposed to be chapter 3. Yep. Galatians chapter 3. I have it wrong in my notes. Galatians 3, uh, look at verse 22. But the scripture has confirmed all under sin. That's humanity other than Jesus, all under sin. That the promise by faith in Jesus Christ, remember Christ is not his last name, it's his title. Christ the Messiah. So Jesus the Christ um, might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Now, <coughs> excuse me. I spent a lot of time, not a lot, but I've listened to a lot of kids learning music. All of our kids played musical instruments, and Kathy teaches piano to a lot of other people and kids. She's taught over 100 students, right? And so as they're learning and growing, you understand how it, how it works. And sometimes when, when a kid is just learning to play piano, they have to play the exact note at the exact time 
at the right moment, and there could be no artistic expression. You can't add pauses. You can't play a little faster and then slow down. You have to learn within the parameters. Then once you get really good, then you can do it without that. When you're first learning to drive a car, you, you really have to think, don't you? How many of you think people are thinking when they're out there driving it? I was on the road yesterday, and there were several people who weren't thinking. Uh, but out, when, at first, you got to think, oh, yeah. And hopefully you use turning signals, and, oh, i got to change the Oh, turn on my signal. And you got to think it through. And then after a while, it becomes a habit for you. It's common for you. Uh, when you're first learning anything, it takes a lot of work. And so what the, the purpose of the law, it was our schoolmaster. It was our tutor. It was one that would bring us to the place of saying, we need a savior. The law was designed to expose your sinfulness so that you could learn you needed a savior. And so Jesus said, I am come to fulfill the law. The purpose of the law was to point the way to Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, I'm here. All the law has pointed to me. I'm here. That's the fulfillment of the law. So back in Matthew chapter 5, we're going to turn to a couple other passages later. But Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, Do not think I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. And the itty-bitty littlest character of the law and the littlest accent mark in the law, those will be fulfilled by his obedience, fulfilled by fulfilling the purpose of the law. Now, he didn't say that we have to obey the ceremonial laws of Israel, no. But there were certain laws in the Old Testament that still apply today, like murder. Don't commit murder. That was true in the Old Testament, true in the New Testament, and it's still true to us today. The, the high standard of grace, um, God raises the bar. See, a lot of people say, oh man, in the Old Testament they were under law and they had to, these rules and regulations. Now we're under grace and God just forgives and we can do whatever we want. Years ago, there was a young man in our church who did not like following the rules of his parents. So he knew what he was going to do. He was going to get out from under their control. He went in the army. <laughs> I, I thought, really? <laughs> well, listen, Jesus doesn't dumb down the law. Jesus doesn't say, hey, you know, in the Old Testament, you had to live up to this. Now, this is good enough because now we're under grace. That's the way a lot of people understand it. A lot of the mis unbiblical teaching of grace says God just doesn't care much about sin anymore. Well, let's see what Jesus actually says. So the first thing that I want you to think about him is exceeding righteousness. Exceeding righteousness. Jesus said, your righteousness had to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Now, 
In Exodus 18, uh, Moses was sitting and he was the arbiter of the law. He was God's representative, God's person. And so people would come to him and he would explain the rules and regulations. And, that. and then his father-in-law, Jethro, said, Moses, you need some help. And so Moses then appointed all these other people to help. And from that point on, a, a lot of people were used by God to help point them to the law. So it is spread out under Moses. And then going down through the centuries after Moses, um, we're like 1,475 years later, Jesus is on the scene speaking. So the people of Israel had heard from the guys that from Moses and then the guys that were assisting Moses and then then gradually they heard from prophets and they heard from priests and and then eventually the scribes and the Pharisees um, when Antiochus Epiphanes was ruling uh, over Israel a Syrian leader ruling over Israel um, they uh, there was a, a revolt the Maccabean revolt and uh, so they threw off the yoke of Syria and for a hundred years they were free and then then they got taken over again by the Romans and were in bondage again. But in that uh, passage, the Macca Maccabean Revolt, there was a, a group called the Hasidim, and they were very strict followers of the law, very ritualistic, and and how you did things and did. And out of them grew this group called the Pharisees that were on the earth in Jesus' day. And the Pharisees had all these rules and regulations of how to do everything. I've shared this many times. My favorite one of their rules was how to wash your hands. Because when you're through washing your hands, you had to hold them up like this. Because if you went down like this, that's what I do in the sink when I'm done washing. I, you know, but, but see, there might have been a part that you didn't wash. And now the water touched that and then went back over your hand and now it's unclean. Uh, they had... Lots of rules. And so the Pharisees, their name meant separated ones, they felt like they were better than everybody else. It was a good concept to separate yourself unto God. We should all do that, right? That was a good concept. But then they got very legalistic. We see that in some churches today, too. Very legalistic about what's right, what's wrong, and what to do. And so for about 200 years before Christ, uh, the Pharisees were in power and ruling, and, and uh, at least 150 years, they were the dominant political religious influence in Israel. And they ruled in the temple. The Pharisees were in charge of the temple, and they set themselves up. They were teachers of the law, and they considered themselves to be keepers of the law. But Jesus said they had this outward conformity, but their hearts were far from him. Have you ever known somebody who you thought was a godly person and all of a sudden you found out they did something really bad? And you think, whoa, how did that happen? Some of you have experienced that with former pastors or deacons or even family members. Whoa, how did that happen? Uh, it's because our heart, we can conform on the outside, but not on the inside. You, How many of you remember that great theologian, Dennis the Menace. Uh, Dennis the Menace was put in his chair in the corner, and his mom made him sit in the corner. And so he's sitting in the corner, and Dennis said, I'm sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. That's the way the Pharisees were. On the outside, they conformed. But they were the dominant political influence. Now, uh, 
we can't understand this. In America, we've gone back and forth, political parties, who's in office. You know, I was born when Eisenhower was in office, and then we had Democrats and Republicans and Democrats and Republicans, and, and you know, it just goes back and forth. We, we can't understand one party being so dominant. But Israel, smaller country, Israel, very religious country, and, and the, the nation of Israel was focused around Jerusalem and focused around the temple. And so the Pharisees took control of the temple and they kind of ruled over Israel and, and dominated everything. So imagine if in America for 200 years we were dominated by my favorite name of all parties, the Whig Party. Uh, I wonder if they wore powder puff all the time to be... But it, what if, if we were always dominated by that one group? You would have been raised in that environment. Your parents would have been raised in that environment. Your grandparents would have been raised in that environment. Your great-grandparents would have been raised in that environment. You wouldn't know anything different. Years ago, <laughs> one of Jerry Reeves' granddaughters got in trouble for texting boys too much. And so she said to Jerry, were you allowed to text boys when you were a teenager? Because <laughs> she thought the whole world had always been that way. Did you know the graduating class that just graduated, most of those kids were born after the turn of the century? They were born in this century and this millennium. And makes you feel old, doesn't it, those of you who are older? Um, but but if your grandparents and your great-grandparents had always been that way, that's the way it was always done, that's just how the culture is, and the Pharisees were the dominant religious and political party of the nation for generations. And now Jesus said, these Pharisees who hold themselves up as the epitome of godliness, your righteousness has to be better than theirs. Now, when if Todd were a little Jewish boy in Israel, years ago when he was a little boy, okay? When he was a little Jewish boy in Israel, and he was playing with something the Pharisees didn't approve of, what would the Pharisees have done? They would have fussed at him. They might have taken it away. They would have grabbed his arm and taken him to his father and said, you keep this boy under control or you're out. And in Israel, when you got put out of the temple, you lost your job. You lost your capacity to earn income. You sometimes lost your family. I mean, it was brutal. And the Pharisees just ruled over it. And they noticed every little thing that other people did anyway. They didn't notice the sinfulness of their own heart. And so you're a kid, and it's like they have all these rules and rules and rules, and you keep getting in trouble. And then you grow up, and now you're an adult person, and you're still intimidated by these Pharisees because they have all these rules and laws, and they keep them, and they fuss at you if you messed up. And then Jesus said, okay, your righteousness has to exceed that. That would have been mind-blowing. We understand it differently because we look back in history. They were living it. This exceeding righteousness was a very strange concept. And so then 
Jesus said, not only did the righteousness have to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, but that his teaching was more important than anything that had happened yet. So, when did the teaching of God, where did it get started? The Bible that we have, where did it get started? Who was the first person writing down books of the Bible? Moses. And so Moses was a great leader in Israel. He was writing down the scripture for us, pointing people to God. And from Moses all the way through Malachi, from the book of Genesis to the book of Malachi, the entire Old Testament, Jesus says the law and the prophets. But that means the whole thing. Um, there's parts of the Old Testament that are history and parts that are wisdom literature. But Jesus wasn't excluding those. They would use the law and the prophets to describe the whole Old Testament. Like we sometimes say, the scriptures or the Bible, and, and we're talking about the whole book. And so they would, the law and the prophets was their way to say the whole book. And so Jesus said, you have all those things that were said, and some of these ancient great rabbis that people still quoted from, Jesus said, that's what they said, but now I say something different. That would have been very strange for them. Jesus is raising the bar. And he is the one who is the ultimate arbiter, uh, the ultimate one to decide rules of spirituality because he is the son of God. He fully appreciates the heart of God. He isn't just the son of God. He is God the son. As the sacrificial lamb, he understands the awfulness of sin. As the one mediator between God the Father and mankind, he understands what it takes to bring people to God. As the creator and omnipotent God, he alone has the capacity to rule by fiat. What he decrees becomes law. And he's the only one who has that capability. And Jesus said, hey, you know, they used to say, don't murder anybody. But Isaac, don't even hate them. He raises himself up. And he's talking about this exceeding righteousness that they must have. Now, in our bulletin, on the front of the bulletin, it has a verse, John 1.14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the one. He came down from glory. He came to bring us to God. But let's just look at a couple of verses that remind us the fulfilling of the law and the exceeding of righteousness. See, we need a righteousness that we are totally incapable of doing. You can't live perfectly. You can't. You, you can't even completely focus on anything because your brain's picking up all kinds of other stuff. Sometimes we have to work really hard to pay attention, especially if you're a kid and your parents are talking, right? You really have to work hard to pay attention. And, and we all do. So let's look at what Jesus was talking about. Your righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of Pharisees. Well... We get that righteousness actually as a gift from God 
through Christ. So mark your spot there in Matthew 5 and turn please to Romans chapter 3. In Romans chapter 3, I'm going to begin, we're going to read two verses, verse 22 and 3. Uh, well, verse 21, now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference for all of sin and falls short of the glory of God. So what's he saying? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What the Pharisees did, they told everybody, hey, look, we are better than you, so you must follow us. And Jesus said, all have fallen short. Some people think that if your good works outweigh your bad, or your good works are more than your bad works, you get to go up to heaven, right? And if your bad works are more than your good works, you end up going down to hell. But that's not how God's system works. God said he measures and we all fall short. Like we have people of different heights and sizes in here. And, and if, if we were all standing on level ground and we're all going to try and reach up to the ceiling. Well, you know what? Benjamin could reach several inches higher than I could. And I can reach several inches higher than Kathy can. Does that mean I'm more righteous than Kathy? Yeah, right? No, it doesn't mean that. Uh, it doesn't mean Benjamin's what, what it means is we all fall short. God has this high standard. We all fall short. And Jesus said your righteousness had to exceed the scribes and Pharisees way up there. But that righteousness is a gift from God through Christ. We fall short. We receive his righteousness, the righteousness of God, which is through faith in Christ, in Jesus Christ. That's where we get it. Everybody falls short. Some people may be more righteous than others, but they still fall short. And what the Pharisees didn't realize, they compared themselves to other people, and they looked pretty good. But comparing themselves to the holy standard of God, the exceeding righteousness of God, they were way short. They didn't realize the purpose of the law was to show them they need a Savior. Now, I want you to turn to two more passages. Galatians, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, then Galatians, and Galatians chapter 2. And then we'll look over in Ephesians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 2, um, verse 21. Paul said, I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. So if you can earn your salvation, Christ didn't need to die for your sins. Turn over to the book of Philippians. If you can earn your salvation, if righteousness comes by obeying the law, you don't need to earn your, you, you don't need a savior. You can earn it. When, when I was pastoring in Green Valley, uh, one of the ladies in our church had surgery and so I had, I'd gone by the hospital to pray with her before surgery. And uh, 
and then I, as I was leaving the hospital, when she was going into her surgery, her sister-in-law was going to sit there in the hospital and wait for her to come out of surgery. And so I asked her sister-in-law if she was a believer, if she had trusted Jesus Christ as her Savior. And she said, oh, yes, I never even break the speed limit. Which that, that might be a noble thing to do. That doesn't earn your salvation. She was looking at outward works instead of an inward transformation. Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. Look at verse 7. Paul said, But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Are you following this? I want you to look back in verse 5. Paul describes himself, and he says, Concerning the law, what was he? Philippians 3, 5. Concerning the law, he was a Pharisee. That's where he started out. He was one of those Pharisees. Thought he was better than other people. He was the Pharisee. He was the son of a Pharisee. And, and he was uh, a ruler in Israel. And he held himself up. In fact, he persecuted people who followed Jesus. Because they weren't doing exactly the law according to the Pharisees. And Paul said, I used to be a Pharisee. And considering all those things toward the, the, the law, he said, I, I now count it a loss for Christ. Verse 8, I count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ my Lord, Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and to count them as rubbish that I may win Christ. Count them as rubbish or dung. If you've ever had to clean up uh, bird poop, uh, that's what Paul said. All those things, that's what I count it as. Dung, refuge, garbage to be thrown out. The Pharisees said, we are earning God's favor. And Paul said, you can't. You need the righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees. You need the very righteousness of Christ. And now look how Paul adds in verse 9. And be found in him, in Christ, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. So back in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, your righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And that only comes through Christ. Christ, when he died on the cross in your place and mine, he became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So what we need for this exceeding righteousness is not to be super zealous and yell at other people who aren't. What we need is to receive salvation as a gift from Christ and receive God's righteousness in us. And when Adam and Eve sinned, mankind fell. We, it's called the fall. But when Christ died for our sins and restored us to God, he didn't just raise us back up to the level of Adam and Eve. He raised us even higher. He made us sons of God. We're his family. We're going to live in heaven forever. We're not going to be people living on earth and God in heaven. We're going to be with God. 
God will dwell with us in the new heaven and the new earth, and he will be our God, and we will be his people, the book of Revelation said. We need that exceeding righteousness, which is the gift from God by faith in Jesus Christ. So, um, if you're here today and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, you can't earn your salvation. You can only receive salvation by asking Jesus Christ to forgive your sins and be your Savior. So, um, the second thing is exceeding sinfulness. Exceeding sinfulness. We think of sins, we, we have areas, we have a grading scale for sin, right? I mean, we know we shouldn't, but, but we do, right? I mean, if somebody commits murder, that's like really bad, right? If somebody gets mad at somebody, well, that's not so bad, right? If somebody um, commits adultery, well, yeah, that's bad. If, if somebody rapes somebody, well, that's even worse. If somebody molests a child, well, that's horrific, and it is. But God said all sin deserves hell. Every sin. So there's some sins that we're kind of comfortable with, right? Name a sin that in our culture is acceptable, even in some churches. Somebody over here. Complaining. The Bible says do all things without murmuring and complaining. Wish you hadn't brought that up. No, that, that's exactly right. So, all right, somebody in here. So, what was that? Lying. Yeah, in our culture, I mean, it's perfectly acceptable. It's modeled for us. The leadership in our culture models how lying is needed. That's how some of them get elected. That's how some of them stay elected. That's how the culture works. All right, somebody over here, what's a sin that's sort of acceptable? Pride. Yeah. We have other sins that are perfectly acceptable even within the church. Not this church, of course, but you know those other churches. Do you know that according to the people in this world, churches are a place Gossip. I know a lot of non-believers who think Christians just sit around and gossip about other people. And some believers do that. And we shouldn't. Oh, we couch it in real spiritual things. I wish you'd pray for my friend Victor because, uh, you know, Victor's doing all these bad things and he's doing this and that and this and that and this. Oh, please pray for Victor. You know what you can do without gossiping? Pray for Victor. He's really struggling. Now, if there's a reason they need to know it, like there's some things that I've talked to our deacons about, things going on, because they needed to know that because this issue is going to affect the church. But most of the time, we don't need to share but we have a tendency to do it. I, I think within the church, some of the sins that are acceptable is being a little short-tempered. Well, it's okay to be a little fussy. No, not according to Jesus, not according to the Scripture. Well, it's okay to overeat, not according to Jesus. It's okay to... We, we have this tolerance of certain sins. 
And so Jesus kind of blows this away. We all, some translations say, thou shalt not kill, you know, and there are people who say, oh, killing anything is wrong. You should never kill uh, a bug. And I must confess at church here this morning, I killed a bug. Uh, we had one of those big beetles about this long, big black things with antenna that stick out like my hand span, you know, uh, big, and it was out here. And I could just see those junior church kids having fun with that. And you know, I just didn't want Tucker to be chasing some other kid with that thing in his hand. And, and uh, So I took a shovel and I just splatted it. And then I took it and threw it out in the dirt. And uh, But there are people today who say, oh, that's wrong. You should never kill anything. Now, to be honest with you, when we lived at the edge of the desert and we would find a rattlesnake in our yard... I would just throw it back out in the desert. Um, one time, Kathy, we lived in another community. Kathy came walking in. She said, I wanted to walk barefoot, and there's a snake on the sidewalk. Would you please move the rattlesnake? And so I went out and moved the rattlesnake for her and threw it back in the desert. And, you know, why kill it? it it's a natural creation of God. And, but if they get in our house, that's, that's a little different. We'll kill them. But, but some people say killing anything is wrong. And it's, it's evil if you eat anything from an animal. So pork or beef or chicken, oh, that's evil. Really weirdly, those same people think it's okay to eat Brussels sprouts. <sighs> oh. But look, Jesus said... We all, everybody recognizes murder is wrong. Just cold-blooded murder. We all recognize that. This is not talking about self-defense. This is not talking about accidental death. This is murder, cold-blooded murder. Everybody recognizes that's wrong. But Jesus raises the bar. He said, under the law, those don't commit murder. Under grace, don't be angry at someone. That if you have hatred in your heart towards somebody, it's the same sin in God's eyes as murder. That, that's exceeding sinfulness. Jesus raises the bar. Grace doesn't say, hey, you know, God now kind of ignores sin. Just love him and love people and you're okay. Jesus said under the law, murder was prohibited. Under grace, hatred is prohibited. So the Pharisees, who didn't commit murder, but they had hatred in their heart, Jesus said, they're guilty of a murderous spirit before God. God said that kind of hatred is the same thing that he hates about murder. So uh, you can't... And then what Jesus said, he said in uh, verse 21, you heard it was said to those that you shall not commit murder, not murder, and then he said, but I say unto you, verse 22, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. So don't be angry. And some translations don't add the without a cause. But Jesus wasn't saying all anger is sinful, was he? How do we know that? Yeah, he was angry when he cleansed the temple. He was angry once when he spoke to his disciples and rebuked them for their um, lack of faith. Uh, 
So it's an unrighteous anger is what he's talking about here. Somebody who's upset and angry with people. And so a lot of translations add without a cause, which is fun. It actually helps us understand. So if somebody smashes into your car, it's okay to be a little angry about what they did. Uh, but don't, I mean, don't build upon that. So you, and then Jesus said, look, if you come to church and you're ready to give an offering, and then you remember somebody's upset by something you have done, go deal with that first, then come back. So like, what if when Benjamin got up here and said, we're about to have an offering, Dean, is there anybody you need to go get right with before you give an offering? Griston, is there anything you need to confess and deal with? You know, Clorinda, are there any issues you need to deal with? Okay, you know what would happen in some churches? The place would empty. <laughs> because everybody would have to go deal with that and then come back. Listen, God despises that attitude that we have of anger toward other people. Or if somebody's upset, well, that's just their problem. All I did was say it the way I season. No. You're supposed to say it with grace, seasoned with salt, caring and ministering to people. So if, if you are a person who uh, people get upset with the way you talk, you, you've heard that thing, you know, if, if, if Bob has a problem with John and Bob has a problem with Joe and Bob has a problem with Fred, maybe Bob is the problem. Uh, Maybe you are the problem. And God said, your relationship with him is connected to your relationship with them. You can't be in right fellowship with God unless you're caring for other people. Are you still here in Matthew 5? Look over in chapter 6. I want you to look at uh, a verse here. Matthew chapter 6, verse 14. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So, if you're here, you come to church, you're like, what is Bill doing putting an offering in? Bill's supposed to come to me and resolve this. Well, you're also supposed to forgive Bill, right? Should have said Phil, then no one would be looking at you, Bill. Sorry. <laughs> but Jesus has raised the bar. So there's exceeding righteousness and exceeding sinfulness. What the Pharisees did not realize is that they could never be righteous enough. Never. They needed the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now, fortunately, there's one more exceeding thing here, and that is exceeding grace. Exceeding grace. You remember, look back in verse 19. Whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. You still get in. If you have asked the Lord to forgive your sins and be your Savior, even if you mess up, you still get in. There are people who believe that you can lose your salvation. 
and they believe that they can earn the keeping of their salvation by their righteous zeal. That's what the Pharisees were doing. You can't keep yourself saved. God is so righteous and holy, and you are not. And you can have sinful thoughts, and Jesus is saying a sinful thought is sin before God. And so you need the righteousness of Christ. You need his exceeding grace. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, agree with God at sin, confess it, turn away. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. To cleanse us from all of it. Because it's exceeding grace. In fact, Jesus used the illustration when Peter said, should I forgive somebody seven times? Jesus said, no, you need to forgive them at least 490 times. Just, just keep forgiving and forgiving and forgiving because we all desperately need God's grace. We need his exceeding grace and his grace exceeds our sin. No matter how much sin you have committed, if you ask the Lord to be your savior, he will forgive your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Isaiah said, your sins can be forgiven. So July's memory verse is here in the bulletin. Yeah. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. God wants every person to be saved. The Pharisees pushed people away from God. Jesus called people unto God. And we're supposed to be like him. But we need to remember, grace does not make fewer demands. Grace does not say, oh, sin used to be bad, now it's not so bad because I just love you so much. Grace raises the bar. Used to be murder. Now it's hatred. And grace raises the bar on our behavior. Grace puts more responsibility on us to respond to God's grace. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. So by grace you are saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. But now that you are saved, you are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God planned in advance, prepared ahead of time, that you should walk in these. So he didn't say, hey, receive the free gift of salvation. Now step up. Now serve. Now minister. Grace raises the bar, the high standard of grace. And what Jesus said here in the Sermon on the Mount is love your enemies. What Paul said is, is uh, something really profound. Ephesians 4.32. Be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. So the Pharisees said, we're doing okay with God because I haven't murdered anyone yet. Are you a Christian? Oh, yes. I never even exceed the speed limit. 
And God said, there's a higher standard here. The purpose of the law was to point us to Jesus. Jesus came on the scene and said, I am here to fulfill the law. All through his life, it said this was written that it might be fulfilled. This was done that it might be fulfilled. He fulfilled the law and brought us the way of salvation. Exceeding grace. Grace does not make it easier. Grace demands more. But there's a difference. Grace doesn't beat you up when you fail. Grace forgives you when you fail. And then like the woman caught in adultery, Jesus said, I don't condemn you. Now go and sin no more. He'll forgive the sin, but then he raises the bar and says, now operate on a higher level. So if you're here today and you haven't trusted Christ as your Savior, the Bible said you're still in your sin and you're on your way to hell. You need your sins forgiven. You need a Savior. If you're here today and you're being grumpy towards somebody else, Jesus said, I'm raising the bar. If you hate somebody in your heart, I'm viewing you as if you were a murderer. You need to deal with it. If you have offended somebody because you're brusque or because... They're easily offended even. So try and take care of that. Go deal with that. You can't have a healthy relationship with God unless you also have a relationship with others. Because your relationship with Him is connected to your relationship with them. We need to follow Christ. He is the one mediator. He said, all those other people, they said this, but now I say what he says is the ultimate authority before God. He understood the heart of God, the nature of God, the heart of man, the nature of man, and he brought God and man together because he was the God-man, and he died for our sins that we might be reconciled to God. Right before the message, we sang a song called Amazing Love. It's hard to fathom how Jesus could totally understand the depth of our sin and still die for us. But he did. Amazing love. And we sang the first and second verse, and now we're going to sing the first and last verse of amazing love. If there's a decision you need to make before the Lord, maybe trust in the Savior, you could come forward. We could have somebody show you. If you want to become members of this church, we could... Do that. If you want to be baptized, we could uh, arrange for that, for you to follow the Lord in baptism. We want you to follow Christ, receive him as Savior, and let his righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees as we live for him. Let's sing.